Once again, good afternoon, everyone. We're bringing you Matt Time action from the Victoria Pavilion in Calgary. And in the ring, Gino Bob Morella and John Foti. This one is going to go 10 minutes. And this is for a pot that has gradually been building up. A pot that Morella will put up of a total of $650. John Foti throws 50 bucks into the pot for this opportunity on my time to try and uh, take the money away. And in case you haven't heard it before, we might point out that anybody, amateur, professional, otherwise, I don't know what else there is, <laughs> can take on uh, Mr. Morella. Oh, look at that. And if they can pin him in 10 minutes, that 650 bucks could be theirs, provided Foti doesn't walk away with it here this morning. And away we go with another edition of the Stampede Wrestling Show. Let me tell you good people something, and you beer belly sharecroppers out there. As the old saying goes, batten down the hatches and lock the door. It is indeed wrestling time once more. Hello wrestling fans and welcome back to the Stampede Wrestling Podcast, a ring-a-ding-dong dandy. It's going to be a great pleasure today to have Vance Nevada as our guest. We're going to have a long interview with him about the history of Stampede Wrestling. Now Stampede Wrestling's been around for a long time and that clip you heard at the start was a show from 1961 with Gino Morella, otherwise known as Gorilla Monsoon, taking on John Foti and uh, the wonderful voice of Ed Whalen was giving us the whereabouts on the match at the time. Now Stampede Wrestling actually began in Edmonton as Klondike Wrestling in 1948 and it's transitioned over the years. 1951 it became known as Big Time Wrestling. In 1959 it started to run more so in Calgary. It became Wildcat Wrestling in 1965 and then finally gained its most famous moniker Stampede Wrestling around 1967. Now, Vance Nevada has been around in wrestling since 1993. His moniker has been Mr. Beefy Goodness, if you have seen him in matches. And he's been in many because he's wrestled about 1,500 times or more over the course of the last three decades. He is also a booker and historian. His first book was Wrestling in the Canadian West, and that came out in 2009. And he was honored by the Cauliflower Alley Club as a result of that book. Now, Vance has a new book coming out this year. It's going to be released this week, in fact, and it's called Uncontrolled Chaos. And it's going to expand beyond Western Canada. It's going to delve deep into Canada's remarkable pro wrestling legacy from coast to coast. We're going to enter into a clip now, which is later on in that 1961 show, and where Bulldog Brower had uh, wreaked havoc 
all around the ring, upending Stu Hart, bringing a chair into the fray. But he's also taking on Bill Solowenko, who is at the time wrestling Rep Miller. And if you get a sense of what's happening here, Brower seemed to arrive late, had a suitcase, and just walked into the ring and started attacking the other wrestlers, giving you kind of a version of the uncontrolled chaos that was Stampede Wrestling at the time. Now, arriving with suitcase and all. Well, let's wrap up this match. Where is this nonsense here? You told me to be here at 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock you told me to be here. Oh, what do you got this nonsense? Are you a scout that I'm going to kill your boys in your ear? Your little baby boys? Your little baby boys. Did you see what I did? fans and welcome to the ring a ding dong dandy podcast today we're going to go back in history take a little bit of a history lesson from wrestling historians mr vance who's joining us today uh curtis tiff is on as co-host too as well curtis very good things are well in alberta uh yeah it's been dry um this morning i was out at my cabin out in alberta alberta woke up to uh a lot of rain, so I had to shuffle, pack up, and get back to uh, town to do the podcast today. Sounds good. We should share some precipitation from BC with you. It's been nonstop here all year. Oh, that's normal there. <laughs> and we've got Mr. Vance Nevada joining us today. How are you doing, Mr. Nevada? I'm doing well, gentlemen. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Excellent. It's still great to have you on. As you know, this is the Stampede Wrestling Podcast. We try to look back at the memory of Stampede Wrestling. Most guests are from kind of 1980 onwards. But uh, given your background in wrestling history, we thought we'd talk a little bit about kind of the precursors of Stampede Wrestling, if you will, going back to Edmonton and maybe even back to Montana. So yeah, um, you're you well aware of the history of Stu Hart. Can you give us a little bit of your insight into the history of Stu Hart going back in time? Sure. 
You know what? When I, uh, you know, initially got interested in wrestling history, you know, it was quite by fluke in 1994. Uh, you know, I was a young wrestler coming up, and I heard a, a, a name mentioned in the locker room that I'd never heard before. And it was a local guy in Winnipeg that it was, you know, pretty active in the 50s and 60s. And it really, you know, kicked off, you know, I was curious about it. And uh, I started what in t what I intended to be just a summer project in the summer of 1994. And it turned out that it, like, tipped off the iceberg, and I've been researching Canadian wrestling history ever since. Uh, so now that collection of, of results includes more than 60,000 events uh, from 1930 to the present. I have some stuff before that as well, but it's not as thorough. Um, including uh, more than 8,100 uh, lineups and results for Stampede Wrestling. That's amazing. That's a huge historical record. Now, of course, Stampede Wrestling started back in probably about the late 40s or 1948. And Stu Hart yeah. got that started with some other uh, investors that he had with him in Edmonton, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, he did. You know, in, in that time, you know, it was very much, uh, you know, a part of keeping the illusion of kayfabe, you know, your star wrestler couldn't also be the promoter. And so Stu Hart, you know, coming in, you know, sort of in the emerging stages of his own uh, professional career uh, was the headliner. Uh, so he couldn't also be the promoter. So what he did was enlist his neighbor. Uh, who was a, a young kid just, just going to, to uh, college named Al Oming. And Al became the official uh, promoter. They called him the kid promoter in Edmonton. And, you know, Al, of course, he, he became famous later on as a zoologist uh, and actually uh, had his own uh, wildlife game park in northern Alberta. Uh, and then in the 80s, uh, you know, I don't know if, if this, if you guys would remember this, but I remember this, and this is, you know, later on, now that I, I know his connection to wrestling, you know, it's an even bigger deal. I grew up in a, in a small town in Manitoba uh, called Surus, but I actually went to school in a town called Elgin. And Elgin is one kilometer long by two blocks wide, tiny, tiny town. And Al Oming came to my school uh, with uh, his cheetah, Tawana. And he was doing sort of like a wildlife conservation awareness tour. Um, and so he was very involved with that, uh, you know, up until his death. Uh, but he was sort of the first promoter of record for Stampede Wrestling. And he was not necessarily a wrestling fan, was he? You know what? He was kind of outside the circle. Uh, you know, he, he got involved because his neighbor was a wrestler. And, and really, you know what? You know, it was kind of very well documented at the time that, you know, he was using proceeds from, you know, his take of the, the wrestling events that he was promoting in Edmonton to fund his college education. Oh, that's interesting. And so when Stu first kicked off, he was largely in Edmonton at the time. I think he had most of his first events at the sales pavilion. Yeah, Edmonton was the was the kickoff point. Calgary at that point uh, was already you know owned, um, and so it was uh, Jerry Meeker uh, out of who was actually had a booking office out of Montana. Um, so Great Falls, Montana, was considered to be the headquarters, if you will, uh, of the territory. And so uh, Jerry Meeker had had sort of 
stolen the territory uh, from the previous Calgary promoter, Darby Melnick, and he held control of it. Um, so when Stu wanted to come in and actually start running Calgary, um, he had to buy the rights to promote in the city. And I don't think that, that Jerry Meeker gave him a really good deal uh, as a result, even though they had worked kind of loosely together. Uh, you know, for four years at that time. So Stu moved operations to Calgary in 1952. So Stu is pretty honorable about the whole thing. He didn't try running any kind of outlaw shows in Calgary until he had purchased. Yeah, you know, it's kind of, you know, when you look at the, I I would say probably at that time, uh, you know, knowing what was available and, and having an awareness of the prairies probably was the kickoff that, created, you know, that large touring circuit for Stampede. Stampede had one of the largest, you know, like the most miles traveled per week in terms of their schedule. You know, when you look at, you know, and, and this was like baby steps at that time, but, you know, the, the schedule going into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you had, you know, Friday night, uh, Calgary, uh, Saturday night, Edmonton, they was typically off. Monday was Lethbridge or Medicine Hat. Tuesday was Red Deer or another location. Wednesday was Saskatoon. Thursday was Regina, and Friday was back in Calgary. Um, and so that's a that's a lot of miles to cover, uh, you know. And and so and for for a lot of perspectives for the Americans, maybe they were used to a shorter driving circuit like California or Florida. Um, it was it was rough, and then you add Canada's winter climate on top of that. Uh, so you know, Stampede Wrestling was really really considered by many wrestlers to be you know if you, if you haven't wrestled in Calgary, you're not really a wrestler. And Stu often shut down over the summers, so that was ten months of winter travel for the most part through the prairies. Yeah, and and, and largely that was that was considered. It, it was kind of interesting for Western Canada. So Winnipeg was the same with the AWA uh, and Stampede, where they would open in September and then you know sort of close out, you know, the beginning of July, and that was you know primarily because in Western Canada, you know, when the weather's good, nobody wants to be inside. They want to go out and you know go camping or go to the beach and things like that, enjoy outdoor events. So that was the schedule, which was the complete opposite of the other side. So, you know, Montreal's schedule in particular, uh, it was largely dictated by hockey. And though they promoted year-round, the circuit, in terms of, you know, touring most of the cities outside of Montreal and Quebec City and Ottawa, uh, didn't open up till April. And that was kind of, you know, in line with when the ice came out of the arenas and they could get into the bigger venues in those other cities. So, you know... The Montreal Territory and and the Maritimes, you know, they would be very active in the summer versus, uh, you know, Calgary, Winnipeg, you know, more active in the winter. B.C., because it really isn't as affected by climate, it was a year-round territory. Um, That's really interesting. And then, of course, the Maritimes, as you touched on, they never ran through the winter months. No, I mean, there was... the. The thing with the Maritimes is the a lot of the towns in the Maritimes are smaller. So the only venues that were large enough to host wrestling, at least wrestling as the draw as it was at that time, uh, you know, were the hockey rinks. 
and you know these are small town hockey rinks so it's not like uh, you know, in the city where, you know, these uh, venues are equipped with, well, they've got covering for the for the ice surface so they can have concerts and things no matter what time of year. Um, you know, in the small arenas, they didn't have that. So, you know, the, the start of the wrestling season was always dependent on how late winter went and how long the ice was still in the uh, in the rinks. Interesting. In the past few decades, Alberta's had some rodeos that have held wrestling events. Did Stu ever go that direction at any point in the early part of Stampede Wrestling? I think if you you know you look at at Stu's schedule, you know there was definitely you know connections with the rodeos, uh, but then in a lot of the, and I think this is an important point to make. So if you take a look at professional wrestling today, you know there's more organizations running. But there's not necessarily a busier schedule uh, because most organizations are running the same Friday and Saturday nights. Um, and really, you know, what they've what they've done is they've weakened a model that made money. Um, so Stampede Wrestling, you know, Stu Hart gets the credit for it, but it was really a network of promoters. So you had, you know, Mike Bulat in Edmonton, you had Ned Powers in Saskatoon, you had uh, Pinky Jacobs and later Bob Leonard in Regina. Uh, you had that, um, uh, Darby Melnick and, and other guys in Lethbridge. And so you had this network of promoters working together under a combined brand. Lowly in those markets, it wasn't promoted as Stampede Wrestling. It was promoted usually as that promoter promoting. And that was the same, same, same way they did it in Ontario and in Quebec as well. And the reason that they did it that way, first of all, is you were able to build on the local notoriety of that particular promoter. So maybe they were, uh, maybe maybe it was simply the arena manager, and now he got the clout of saying that you know he is bringing these matches to town and he has made these matches, uh, you know, in response to the public sentiment. Or it could be somebody who was sort of a well-known sports personality in the community, maybe like an outstanding amateur hockey player or a former NHL guy who's come back to home and got repute already as, a, as an athlete. Now they're promoting under their banner, which made it very challenging, uh, uh, you know, when you're doing research to try to put it together. But the reason that it was set up that way was, first of all, that repute, but also um, – you know, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the National Wrestling Alliance in the in the United States actually came under federal uh, scrutiny, and it was actually being investigated by the State Department and the FBI uh, for sort of a conceived uh, monopoly, like the mafia, with the way that they ran wrestling. And so there was a huge investigation that went on, and really what they were trying to say is that, you know, the collusion of promoters had created this monopoly on wrestling that, you know, really ultimately what they were trying to do was expose wrestling and break kayfabe. And so as a result, you know, all of these people were, were, were you know, their, their defense was, no, 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 we're all independent businessmen, you know, we just, I mean, the living limited pool of wrestlers makes it such that it makes sense that we work together. Um, and so, you know, for that reason, you know, promoters were very apprehensive about promoting a league or a circuit. They wanted it to look standalone. So, you know, you might read about a result of a match that happened in Calgary. If you live in Saskatoon, 
but you don't readily connect that, oh, yeah, well, it's the same booker that's booking these matches from town to town. You know, you just know that Ned Powers is our guy, and Ned Powers always brings us the good wrestling, and, hey, these wrestlers are also wrestling in Calgary, and that's a big deal. It's a sharp contrast to what happens today where you'll have so many promotions in one city. For example, Vancouver's got All-Star, it's got New, it's got WrestleCore, and you've got different promotions in Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary. There isn't as much unity now, would you agree? I I definitely agree, and, and I think that that ha- has definitely prevented us from uh, capitalizing on the opportunities for visibility. You know, 12 years or so, or so ago, um, you know, with with sort of the promise of television, um, you know, we were working with a producer. Actually, it was uh, Fred May, who was the producer for Stampede Wrestling for a number of years. Uh, and he had been very instrumental in helping Stampede Wrestling get syndication uh, and, and also international airplay uh, in, the, in the 1980s. So, um, and he held the contract with TSN for Stampede at the time it closed in 1989. So I started talking to Fred, and you know, the idea was, you know, let's get, let's get uh, national television happening again. You know, using his connections in the in the broadcast media and, and my active connections in professional wrestling at that time, and you know what we discovered quickly was just the fragmented way that the independents run. It's hard for you to attract the attention of networks uh, because it, it doesn't look organized at all. It looks very uh, ad hoc. So the idea was, well, you know, let's. Let's let everybody still operate the same way that they operate now, but let's try to find a way to jointly brand this so that it looks bigger and so that it will attract network attention. And, and you know, what we arrived at was uh, the CNWA. And so it was still those, you know, very much the stampede wrestling model where those promoters were responsible for booking their towns and paying their bills. But, by making it larger, we were now able to attract attention of the media outlets in a bigger way. Uh, you know, so much so that in in 2011, um, you know, we were able to get uh, a Canadian wrestler uh, ranked in the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Year End Awards as the number three runner up for Rookie of the Year, and that hadn't happened since 1988. Um, so, I mean, those types of things that you know, people don't think about on a, on a operational level, on a paying and covering the costs of an event level, uh, are huge. And, you know, you think about, you know, that, that number that I gave you earlier on stampede wrestling promoted more than 8,100 events of those Stu Hart directly, maybe promoted half, but Stu Hart, as the the head of Stampede Wrestling, will get credit for it all, and a lot of those other names that uh, that I mentioned are largely forgotten about in history. So, let's go back in time to the early '50s. Who was Stu Hart's biggest star at that time? Al Mills obviously played a big role, but who do you see as the man Stu promoted the most? In the '50s, Al Mills uh, was almost a guy with without parallel. Uh, you know, first as a, as a singles competitor, uh, and then later in, in a tag team with his brother, uh, Tiny. You know, they were 
not only a big deal in in Calgary, but also went on to become you know huge stars, um, you know in Toronto and Montreal, um, you know in in uh, Ontario in 1954 and 55, they were drawing some of the biggest crowds of any tag team ever in history. Um, in fact, you know they're they're acknowledged in the book. You know one of the things that I did, you know when I was putting the book together was make a list of all the shows that were promoted in Canada that drew 10,000 fans or more. And then from that list, take a look at, well, who do we see as recurring names? So of these wrestlers, you know, uh, you know, either singles or tag teams who drew the most crowds as the headliner of over 10,000 and, you know, Alan tiny mills in the fifties, um, you know, were one of the top 10 drawing tag teams of all time. And in fact, six times drew over 10,000 people for a combined draw of 72,000, you know, tickets sold as main eventers in that time period. And then we move a little bit into the later fifties. And I think, um, George Gordienko was probably a big star at that time. Would you say Stu kind of latched onto him as the next star to take them forward? I think, you know, George's story is very interesting. Uh, and, you know, George, um, you know, if you look at his beginnings, George Gordienko was a kid from Winnipeg, uh, multi-sport athlete, natural athlete. You know, he, uh, you know, was like uh, considered to be a great star in high school rugby, uh, you know, went on to a walk-on tryout with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and they wanted to offer him a spot on the team. But he didn't see that it was really economically attractive at that time, so he didn't elect to, to join Blue Bombers. You know, he was a, a record-setting um, weightlifter, uh, and then you know got interested in wrestling. He did a little bit of amateur wrestling, and one of his tra- trainers was a guy named Harold Nelson. And Harold was a you know a former prisoner of war during World War II, who was very active in the you know the Minneapolis wrestling circuit, primarily when they'd come to Canada in the 40s. And, you know, he sort of got George connected. So George went to Minneapolis to train, you know, in 1947. When George debuted, he debuted at 18 years old. You know, within a year, they were already predicting Nako was going to be a future world champion. Um, It's unheard of, you know, for a kid to say, yeah, 19 years old, this kid's going to be world champion. Unfortunately for George, you know, he was coming up at a time when, uh, the Americans suddenly were declared war on communism, and with a name like Goiko, um working in the United States uh, wasn't going to be feasible, and he actually got deported from the United States uh, for suspicions of being a communist. Um, and so, you know, as, as a result, you know, it, it caused George to sort of pivot his attention, and actually for a few years he didn't wrestle at all. He spent, spent some time traveling the world and pursuing art, uh, and so Stu Hart called him up and said, hey, George, why don't you come wrestle for me? And it, and it, it, it was life-changing for George because he came into Stampede Wrestling. Of course, Stu being you know, a former amateur wrestler and Olympic hopeful, now working with Gordienko, who was an outstanding amateur and you know, sort of a pure wrestler, not an entertainer. He was you know, a wrestler. Uh, Gordienko um, actually was... You know, had had a couple of matches with uh, Luthez in the Stampede circuit that went to the 60-minute time limit. And as a result of that, Luthez wanted 
George Gordienko to succeed him in 1956 as the NWA world champion. Uh, the NWA had supported that decision, uh, but when they petitioned, uh, you know, what is now Homeland Security, uh, you know, the U.S. State Department, the State Department wouldn't approve, you know, you know, uh, lifting the, the deportation order. So as a result of George Gordienko not being able to get into the States, he was deprived the opportunity to be NWA world champion. And that really uh, was a huge blow for George because you know, if, he, if he was unhappy with the United States before in 1949, uh, you know, this was sort of, you know, put it over the top. But as a result, uh, George left Canada and North America and went to Europe where he became a major, major wrestling star. It's amazing how political interests changed the wrestling history. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, you think about it, it, if he had had his rise a decade later, how much different would that have changed wrestling history? Mm -hmm. Now, during these early years, Stampede Wrestling went under other names Klondike Wrestling was the first name used. I think that was probably because of the origins of Klondike Days, Klondike Festival in Edmonton. But then it changed to big-time wrestling. Do you know much about why Stu was making these name changes? Um, you know, I, you know, I, that's one of the questions that I, that I always wonder about. And I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of changes like that. I don't think we're intentional. And if you take a look at the ads across the country, um, you know, for example, if you looked at the Ontario Territory, um, you know, and, and uh, the, the bear man, Dave McKigney, he had his shows, the big big bear promotions from 1958 to 88. There's, there's no ads anywhere that identify big bear promotions. You know, all of his ads were big-time wrestling. And so you had, I think it, it was a... Uh, a distinction <clears throat> made by wrestling promoters to put in their newspaper ads to distinguish that, no, we're not, you know, when, when you say wrestling, you know, the first thing people say is, well, what kind of wrestling are we talking about? You know, and in today's day and age, you know, if I'm having a conversation about wrestling and, you know, for example, if I'm in a job interview and, and say, yeah, you know, I'm a former wrestler and they're like, what kind of wrestling are we talking about? Like the Olympics? I can say, no, like WWE. And they get it right away. Um, but, you know, in that time to distinguish, you know, we're talking about wrestling. A lot of the guys, you, the names you're seeing like Stu Hart or Jack Taylor or whatever are guys that they recognize from amateur wrestling, but amateur wrestling doesn't draw. So in order for them to readily communicate to the ticket buying public, what kind of wrestling we're we talking about? Well, this is big time wrestling or this is all star wrestling. Um, and so you would see those two terms used by multiple companies, you know, across North America. So now we're going into kind of the late 50s, early 60s, and Stampede Wrestling is transitioning from an Edmonton base to more of a Calgary base. Killer Kowalski becomes kind of the big face for Stu Hart at that time. Is that correct? Kowalski was a, a, was a big deal because he, he had, you know, made, it, made his mark first in Montreal. So Kowalski was from Windsor uh, and had actually been discovered while he was working, you know, basically as a, as a car manufacturer. He's working in a plant building cars and he was discovered and they said, hey, I think you make a pretty good wrestler. Uh, and so he kind of, 
you know, wasn't immediately enthusiastic about it. He thought, oh, I got a good career here, you know, you know, on the assembly line. But after he got his first few main event paychecks, he realized, geez, I need to switch gears and, and change. So Kowalski became a huge star for promoter Eddie Quinn in Montreal, uh, you know, drawing some big, big houses. You know, Kowalski, you know, over time, you know, Kowalski was responsible for you know, the biggest house in Montreal history. Uh, you know, that was in 1973 against Mad Dog Michonne and Jerry Park. They drew 29,000 plus, uh, which prior to WWE was the biggest, you know, attendance of all time in Canadian wrestling. But, you know, Kowalski was sort of like the one of the first, you know, giants uh, to come along. You know, he's a six, six, seven, big kid. Um, you know, good looking guy. Um, so, you know, made an immediate splash with people, right? You could put him in front of, you know, media and they could definitely understand like, oh, geez, you know, we get it. We get why this, this towering, uh, you know, behemoth is, is a superstar professional wrestler. And Kowalski gave great interviews. He had great charisma on the mic too. Kowalski's, you know, some of his interviews, you know, you know, early on, really, really intense, you know, later on in his career, it, you know, it almost, um, you know, it was, it was very, you know, ranty and ravey as you would come to expect. Uh, but you know, a classic, classic villain throughout. So at this time, Stu is centered largely in Calgary. He's got a TV show that's got some range around the Prairie provinces and he's expanded a little bit. What does that look like when he's trying to run these towns that are smaller, um, obviously have a lot of farming industry behind them? How was he going into these towns in those early years and getting the shows promoted? Well, that's where, you know, having those local promoters is so critical. You know, obviously, you know, the, the work that's involved with, you know, liaison with the arenas, and, and particularly at that time working with, uh, the local newspapers and media uh, is so important. You know, when you look at, you know, consider how little you see wrestling in the newspaper today uh, versus back then. I mean, you might have a, a Wednesday night wrestling show, uh, but, you know, the advertising for that show is starting Thursday morning because you got the recap of what happened Wednesday night by the sports reporter. And then they're already giving you the teaser to say, well, next week they're going to be in a rematch. And then the newspaper ad is going to run on Saturday and Monday. Uh, and then you might have an article in between. And if you got a new wrestler debuting where you can get their promo shot in the newspaper, um, you know, you've got going, things going on. So in an individual town, you might have things going on in your local newspaper four times uh, over that seven-day cycle. And so you, you know, multiply that six towns a week that you're promoting that's a lot of activity and a lot of moving parts to have happen so you know having the reliance on those local promoters to do their job uh where as the head of the company all you need to do is make sure that the wrestlers are in the car and get to the town um you know and and that's really the, the key to that success now, when you look back on the history of Stampede Wrestling and the amazing stars that Stu brought in, it, it's truly stunning. When you look at this circuit, it's not a big population, large car trips, middle of winter, 
But he brought in people like Waldo and Eric. He brought in people like Abdullah the Butcher, Killer Kowalski. What was it about Stu and his promotion that allowed him to get such an amazing star quality to it? Well, I think, you know, the 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 first thing is you had the the Canadian circuits, uh, you know, and I didn't even really have a full picture of this until, uh, you know, because when I started doing the research, I had it like segregated so that I could keep track of what I was doing. So I had, okay, here's my file on Stampede Wrestling, and I put that all together. Here's my file on Montreal, and here's my file on the Maritimes. And it wasn't until I put it all together where now you can see, you know, you know, by tracking the travels of an individual wrestler. Okay, they did six months in Vancouver, and they wrapped up on Friday night in Vancouver. They started with Stu Hart Saturday night. Then they did a year in Calgary. Then they left Calgary. They went back to Vancouver, or they left there, and they went to Toronto. And you can really see the travel from, from coast to coast in Canada uh, of the wrestlers that only work domestically. Um, so for you know a guy like Abdullah the Butcher, you know, uh, Abdullah was uh, another guy. He was he was you know dis- discovered working his blue collar job. Uh, you know, he, he's originally from Windsor, Ontario. Uh, discovered by Gino Brito, who helped get him started. Um, and in the beginning, you know, they just well, he's just another guy. You know, well, let's just call him Zealous Amara. And Zealous Amara was uh, basically a, a a tr- an anglicized version of, or maybe a franco francophone version, however you say Frenchicized, uh, of Celie Samara, who was a, a pretty notorious black wrestler in the 30s and 40s, and so it's kind of like a tribute name. So they called him Zealous Samara, and he was okay. I mean, he's getting his early matches, but it wasn't until Abdullah had idea for Butcher. And debut that gimmick, that character in Vancouver, that you know his, his career outlook changed tremendously. Uh, so as Abdullah, as that persona, he was able to reinvent, and that's that's you know I think another really important part of that career of wrestling is you know, guy. You know, I'll throw a name out to you, and I know how he transitioned. Then, then uh, bonus points, but. You know, there's a, you know, a kid, a French kid from Eastern Ontario gets involved with wrestling um, and gets his first break uh, in the 60s. Wrestling is Red McNulty. Rather uninspiring. Uh, middle of the card. Not going to be doing any main events. Uh, not big money. Uh, but he's a solid hand and, you know, he gets regular work. But when Red goes to Montreal and they decide that they're going to give him a new gimmick. Now his career explodes. Do you know nothing? Talking about Ivan Koloff, one of a large number of Quebec bald men that became... Yeah. So Ivan Koloff you know, transitions uh, in 1968 or 69. Montreal, Johnny Rougeau, Ivan Koloff. Within four years, he's world champion. Champion um, that that ability would be flexible uh, and go from territory to territory and reinvent. It's so important to so many of those stars. You know, Abdullah the Butcher is one. Ivan Koloff is one. 
you know, so many guys like that. Um, but it also, you know, from a research perspective, makes it incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, you know, particularly if you're compiling sticks on, on wrestlers, much different than any other sport. So if I was uh, researching hockey, uh, you know, I can go and check out all the almanacs and whatever that are available and get all of Wayne Gretzky's stats. There's never going to be a challenge where I say, well, don't forget that year that uh, Gretzky played as the master. Uh, that's now, you know, wrestlers that, you know, I've had, you know, multiple names for careers just in, you know, being a uh, versatile folder, uh or, or to be able to accommodate a need. Well, you know, Waldo Von Eric, who's the name you brought up, you know, Waldo uh, started his career as a teenager. Uh, you know, his real name is Walter Sieber. Uh, the promoter uh, had him wrestling as Baron Von Sieber. And then he was, you know, he a villain, a heel, you know, in the early part of his career. But as he started to get notoriety and attract attention of, of Frank Tunney in Toronto, they said, well, yeah, we'll start using you. You're a big kid and we'll use you on the card. But, you know, we've already got a lot of German villains already, so we're not going to call you uh, Baron von Sieber. We're going to call you Wally Sieber. And so now he's Wally Sieber. And, uh, you know, I think it was actually in Calgary. Uh, no. It was in Ontario uh, that uh, he, he got to work with Fritz von Erich a few times. And next thing you know, he's Waldo von Erich, Fritz von Erich's brother. And uh, you know, that became his, his character that he's known for for the rest of his career. Now, Stu launched so many big careers and other big ones through the 60s, again, partially because of political reasons, was Sweet Daddy Siki. He had a little bit of uh, work in the United States through the 50s, 60s prior to that. But his big time came in Canada and through the 60s. I think that's where things launched for him. How, how do you see Sweet Daddy Siki in the history of Stampede Wrestling? Sweet Daddy Siki is huge uh, in in the way that at a time when you know professional wrestling was... I mean, we didn't see it as much in Canada. And that's not to say that uh, Canada... It isn't, wasn't, and is not without its own challenges around racism. But you know, at a time, particularly in the United States, when circumstances were very volatile between races, um, you know, here you have, you know, Smitty Siki, who has has made it a point to be over the top, flamboyant, and in your face, and um, you know, where it's it's. In, in a very much a stark contrast to a Luther Lindsay or a Sailor or Art Thomas, uh, Siki was way out there, uh, you know, and, and as a result, like, just had this very, very timeless uh, headline appeal. I mean, you, you could take the, the work that Siki was doing in the 60s, you know, with his look and his, his uh, ring attire and, you know, the white rim sunglasses and the, and the, and the glitter and the sequins. And you could put that on a wrestling show today and it's still plays, you know, you know, where there's, there's other, there's other gimmicks and characters that in their day 
were tremendous, but don't parlay to today in the same way. Uh, you know, like Gorgeous George, for example. George, for his day, tremendous. But you think about in today's modern era of political correctness and 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 all the sensitivity that people have, you know, rightly or wrongfully, on any issue, does an ambiguously gay, flamboyant character fly anymore? Um, you know, and 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 are we allowed for it to be a villain, or or, or does that mean we're contributing to a negative stereotype and and whatever? So gorgeous George probably doesn't fly today, but sweet daddy Siki, you know, you could take that that guy, you know, if you could, you know, you know, time travel, put him from the '60s to his prime now in, in 2022, it still plays. You know, it would still be a tremendous attraction. You raise good points. There's a wrestler right now named Effie who's um, declared himself gay. He wrestles in a very masculine fashion, but he looks effeminate. But then you look back in the 80s at Adrian Adonis, who was a tremendous worker, but his his uh, gimmick was cringe. Things mm-hmm. have changed a lot in terms of how things are promoted nowadays compared to the 50s, 60s, 70s, for sure. Absolutely, there has been a lot of change. So now we're heading into the late part of the 60s, 70s. Abdullah, sure, a lot of big men are coming upon Stampede Wrestling now. It's it's changed a little bit. It's not as much for the uh, catch-as-catch-can style. It's developed more of a kind of brawling style. Is there any kind of history behind why Stu is sending his promotion in that direction at that time? I think, you know, one of the things that that is really interesting when you look at wrestling history, you know, and the major promotions, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, Vern Gagne or Bill Watts or Eddie Graham, uh, or Stu, the wrestlers who were also promoters, um, you'll find that, you know, they typically would gravitate to the stars that were most like themselves. So Bill Watts came from a professional football background and so a lot of the guys that excelled in the Bill Watts territory were also former NFL guys, you know, guys like Ernie Ladd and Wahoo McDaniel and, and you know, guys like that, you know, later on, you know, Steve Williams, you know, outstanding football player, you know, transitioned to be Dr. Death, um, you know, and Vern Gagne being a former NCW, NCAA uh, national wrestling champion and Olympic hopeful, uh, you know, he he liked those guys, you know, the Pat O'Connors and the Billy Robinsons, you know, guys that were really finesse on the mat. And, and initially you saw Stu go the same way as well, where it was really about those guys, and, you know, the George Gordiankos, Luther Lindsay's, uh, Les Thornton, you know, guys that really finesse guys on the mat. But I think, you know, after you go through the 50s um, and, and you see what's going on, there was a period of time, you know, around 64, 65, where in the Western Canada, the wrestling business was in the toilet uh, to the point where Stu wasn't running the full circuit anymore. And actually, there was a period of time where he was partnered with Vancouver. So, you know, the wrestlers were doing the, the, the weekly loop that included Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, Calgary. Uh which is an even bigger loop than going the other way through Saskatoon and Regina. But he was sharing, 
you know, a talent roster for that year. So you had guys like Don Leo Jonathan, the Kangaroos, Tony Parisi, uh, you know, making the loop from Vancouver. And I remember talking to Don Leo Jonathan about that at that time. He goes, yeah, I remember that. I remember being in Edmonton in February and wondering, why the hell am I here? Uh, so when you had that, that transition uh, to out of that lull, uh, I think it's, you know, Stu looking at it saying, well, what are, what can we do here that's going to draw? You, you know, I know what I like. I like the finesse wrestlers, but, you know, maybe that's not what the fans are looking for at this period of time. Um, you know, let's let's reignite interest in the territory uh, and, and go a different direction. It was around that time that Stu changed his belt. He was using a Canadian title prior to that, and then he changed it to become North American. Now, I know that occasionally Stampede ran in Montana. Even as late as the 80s, they did some shows in Montana. Was there a particular reason why he changed the name in that way? Was it just to give it more of an allure or more of a, uh, more of a prestigious name? I think, I think it's also reflective of the talent that they had. Uh, so... And considering what other promoters are doing. So, you know, in Toronto, uh, I mean, Montreal was always its own thing. You know, Montreal's heavyweight title was always declared, you know, a world championship. Um, you know, with uh, Billy Watson in Toronto, their main title was the British Commonwealth title. Um, you know, even though I don't think that it ever changed hands outside of Toronto. Uh, you may have had guys win the belt and then go carry it to New Zealand or something on a tour, but British Commonwealth title for the most part, you know, was, or the British empire title rather was, was mostly a Toronto belt. So I think it's partly, you know, considering the, the range of, of Stu's promotion, but also the talent that was coming in because you had a lot of American wrestlers. Um, and then the prestige of, well, this isn't just a Canadian title. This is a North American title. So around that time, and I think it is the case that the first North American title holder was Archie Goldie, Stomper, who had a profound impact upon Stampede Wrestling and really throughout the North American territories as well came on the scene. Uh, how do you see Stomper's history as it relates to Stampede Wrestling at that time? You know, I think I think you... Even, even the fact that, you know, in 2022, we're still talking about the Stomper, uh, you know, and, and diehard wrestling fans, you know, as we, uh, you know, and particularly, you know, longtime Stampede wrestling fans, you know, they'll talk about that series of matches in the 70s between Archie Goldie and Blue the Butcher in about 73. Um, you know, and even Stu Hart himself has said that, that series of matches was, was the highest drawing matches in the whole run of Stampede. Um, you know, Gouldie and Abdulis had that chemistry. Um, you know, I think, you know, Gouldie's role in Canadian wrestling can't be understated. I mean, he's an eight-time North American champion, um, you know, or sort of nine-time North American champion. But, uh, you know, also as a result of his prestige in Stampede Wrestling, carried that North American title distinction with him when he would travel elsewhere. So that North American belt, you know, you would see on the East coast and the Maritimes, you would see, um, 
you know, in Toronto, you would see it, you know, in 74, he did a, a summer tour for uh, Dave McKinney, um, you know, as well. So, you know, you know, Gouldy was, you know, he really used the Stampede Wrestling platform effectively, um, you know, for his own career across Canada. Now, Archie was an amazing wrestler, amazing on the mic. He was one of the few people that could truly scare Bret Hart when Bret Hart was a young teenager as well. But he had this thing about when he went to the United States that he always had limited interviews. And he would not get on the mic, voice piece, if you would. Why was there a distinction across the border with how Archie performed? I mean, I think it just it just comes down to you know character. Um, so when you know when, when he initially went to Kansas City, he was just Archie Goldie the Stomper. Um, but then when they made the train, uh, and now suddenly he's the Mongolian Stomper. Well, if, if you don't speak Mongolian, then then we need to do something you know different. So um, you know give him give him a manager to do the talking for him. I think in Jerry Lawler's book. You know, he mentions that one time you know, they had the Mongolian stomper in and, and uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, he grabbed the microphone and, and cut his own promo. And then people realized, wait a minute, this guy isn't Mongolian. He's got a southern accent uh, and it totally killed his his steep in the territory. Um, so it's part, part of the mystique. I mean, I think, you know, you had, you know, characters like Abdullah the Butcher as well, where you know, their greatest fame came from being mysterious and not talking uh, for, for much of their career. So I think it's, I think it comes down to that. So now in the seventies, Stomper is still a big fixture in Calgary, but we've had a lot of other people come through. We've had some uh, great series of Torquemada, for example. Um, other people like Les Thornton have come through. Dave Rule played a big role, but now we're heading to Dan Crawford territory. And Dan was always great at long stories, putting together a very long-term game plan for how he was going to have a wrestling gimmick go over. He did that a lot with Abdullah, a lot with Stomper, uh, going into the 80s, even with Honky Tonk Man. Tell us about um, your recollections, your history of Dan Crawford as a wrestler through Stampede Wrestling. And, you know, Dan, Dan's record really you know, speaks for itself, you know, both, both in Calgary and in in Vancouver, more so in Calgary, uh, you know, where, you know, I think, and if you ever, if you ever had a chance to talk with Dan, one of the things that you understand very quickly is he's a very intelligent guy, um, you know, and he's a very savvy businessman. Uh, and so, you know, and it, I think it, it's, it's increasingly rare, you know, in, in professional wrestling that you have that that mix you know it, it pains me to say it but you know in a lot of cases the stereotype of, of professional wrestlers kind of being you know big brutes uh, isn't far off for many uh, you know they're, they're gonna go out they're gonna throw a few body slams and collect a paycheck and and that's that's the the extent of what they think but you've got you know some of these guys and, and you know particularly most of the names that We'll mention here are guys that went on to have very long careers, and you and you don't do that if you're a meathead, and 
you know, Dan Crawford is one of those guys, you know, he had a, you know, a very lengthy career, um, you know, was able to, to, you know, parlay his own skills and he's not a big man, you know, like he's, you know, you know, five ten two twenty in the land of giants, you know, with Archie Gouldy and Ox Baker and killer Kowalski and these guys that are, you know, that the stew is using, um, but he's able to parlay his charisma and his smarts into, uh, you know, a defining place in Canadian wrestling history. So in the mid seventies, again, Stu is a big man territory. And I guess Dan probably played into that by being the small guy, having a kind of uh, David Goliath type setting. But then in the late seventies, there's a transition again. Is this because the territory's down that we start seeing people like dynamite kid moving in uh, a little bit later, Robbie Stewart, other smaller, more acrobatic wrestlers. I don't know if it's as much about you know, the, the territory downturn. I mean, it, it could uh, definitely contribute. Uh, I mean, and the Stampede Wrestling territory was always the victim of the strength of the Canadian dollar. And so if the American dollar was really, really strong, it's harder and harder to get the American guys to want to come up, knowing that, you know, their, their $500 guarantee a week or whatever their, their money is means much less in Canadian uh, and so as a result, I mean, I can think of uh, um, Fidel Sierra and uh, the grappler Lenden. They worked Stampede in the early 80s. And they said, yeah, we were up here for a while. And then we just realized, like, it didn't cash flow for us. And so they, they left overnight, uh, went home. But, um, you know, you also had at the same time, um, you know, the the rise of the next generation of heart wrestlers and and one of the primary ones of those was Bruce Hart, who was also a small guy. Uh, so, you know, if he's looking for opportunities to showcase himself, uh, you know, to put himself against, you know, performers that are his size, uh, now you need to create a division for that. So Stu, um, I mean, Bruce, uh, on a tour of England, actually discovered Dynamite Kid. Thought, geez, this kid's incredible. Um, you know, well, we should bring him to Calgary. Um, you know, came home, told his dad, Hey, there's this, there's this kid in, in England. He's tremendous. There's all this crazy stuff and he's awesome. We should bring him. And, and so Stu booked him. Uh, but when dynamite arrived, Stu wasn't initially very excited about that. Uh, you know, and, and dynamite kid writes about it in his own book. Stu came up to him and kind of gave him the once over and, grunted at him and poked him in the chest and said, Hey, you're a skinny bastard, aren't you? Uh, you know, but you know, dynamite went on to, to become one of the most memorable stars in stampede wrestling. So for yourself, are there any other aspects of that earlier time of stampede wrestling that really stick out for you that we haven't talked about yet? I think, you know, one of the things that's really cool about, you know, stampede over other uh, territories and definitely, you know, covered in the upcoming book is that, uh, you know, stampede uh, was one of the first promotions, one of the first circuits in Canada to really uh, provide a platform for women wrestlers. Um, so, you know, stampede, you know, there was, there was, it wasn't without its battles with various civic officials in, in different cities, uh, you know, particularly in, in the mid to late fifties. 
But, you know, Stu Hart was pretty regularly promoting women's matches. And in fact, some of the earliest women's matches he promoted included Helen Hild, who uh, is is the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase's mother. Uh, you know, she was involved in some of the first matches ever held in, in Stampede. Um, you know, Montreal and, and Winnipeg, uh, they didn't get on board with women's wrestling until the 70s. And so Stu was really sort of leading edge, um, you know, on that, you know, probably more, more so than anywhere else. I think Stu also brought in Mildred Burke, did he not? I would have to look back. It's very possible. Hey, Young. Yeah, May Young yeah. way back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of women that came through the territory. Okay, so Vance, I know you've got an upcoming project. I'd like you to tell our fans about this project. Uh, you've written a book before, of course, that most of us are aware of, Wrestling in the Canadian West. Tell us about this new project and how it um, differentiates itself from your last work. Sure. I think the, the upcoming book is Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. And what it aspires to be is the most definitive encyclopedia of Canadian professional wrestling uh, that's ever been published. Uh, and so it, it really goes through you know, territory by territory, uh, a timeline of wrestling history, uh, you know, through the territory era from 1930 to 1989. Um, then it, uh, it uh, explores the international expansion of the WWE and how that changed uh, professional wrestling in Canada and what influences that that had. Um, and then there's a, a very strong section as well on, you know, the independent era of Canadian wrestling, again, broken down territory by territory, um, you know, from coast to coast. Uh, and then I think one of the things that is u- unique about this book is that um, I've also included a very extensive title history section. Uh, so it includes uh, the championships for more than 200 promotions of uh, past, present, more than 600 belts, and the the lineage and, and, and dates and details of those title changes. Um, and then the most challenging part of the book, which you know has been the most stressful, it's taken the most time, um, but it, it is actually a, a records and statistics section of the book. Um, because it doesn't exist for for wrestling, and, and I think even when I've, you know, talked to some of my peers in the wrestling industry, and we've talked about what is it, you know, what are, what are you collecting here, and they say, well, why are you bothering to to collect the stats and, and, and put them there? Because they don't matter. Uh, they do matter uh, because you know there are thousands of men and women that have given their lives to this industry, um, and and many of them overlooked, you know. Over the passage of time um, because people need you know, generally people need to paint th- paint things within a box that they can understand so when we talk about Canadian wrestling we'll talk about the hearts and the Rougeos and Whipper Billy Watson but beneath the surface of that there are so many other wrestlers that have contributed that it's important that their legacies are acknowledged as well so the record books and you know, you know some of the things of Canadian first 
you know, to kind of understand the origins of the tag team match, women's wrestling, battle royals, cage matches, you know, the the first boxer versus wrestler matches, intergender matches, uh, things like that. But uh, and I'll and I'll rattle some of these off because I'm pretty excited to share them. And and that even if you're a diehard wrestling fan, you might not know the answers. So the longest active Canadian wrestling careers. Um, you know, the, the longest title reigns broken down into male, female, and tag team, uh, the most title reigns, and I've got that listed domestically and outside Canada, male, female, and tag teams, um, listing of all the Canadians who have held the world, a world championship ranked by number of days as champion, uh, again, male, female, and tag team, uh, a breakdown of the world titles that have been defended in Canada, how many title defenses and who has the most world championship defenses in our country, the top 25 drawing wrestlers of all time, the top 10 tag teams of all time, the top 10 drawing matches of all time, the top 50 drawing events in Canada, uh, the top 50 most prolific promotions or promoters in Canada, listed number of shows they promoted. Um, <clears throat> and then we get into the stuff Stuff that, you know, has been the most stressful for me right because if it's wrong, you know, we've we've disrespected people. And I also know that if I don't get it right, that's where I'm going to get roasted. So it doesn't matter what we did in the first 475 pages of the book. The last five pages are going to be uh, where the critics are going to come out. But we've listed, uh, you know, by uh, most prolific uh, characters – the top 50 uh, little people wrestlers to ever appear in Canada, the top 100 women, the top 100 tag teams, and the top 100 men. You also have an animal section, don't you, Vance? I had considered it. <laughs> I had considered it. I, I started to figure out, you know, because, you know, wrestling bears, uh, you know, was, you know, a pretty common, you know, attraction from the 50s to the early 80s. And I thought it'd be a fun ranking to, to rank, you know, the the most prolific animal performers in Canadian wrestling. But I just I just didn't know if it would take away from, you know, the the credibility of 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 the other uh, lists. So I've excluded it, but I'll be glad to share that with you. Yeah, probably like Dave McKegney wrestling bear that would also appeared in Stampede, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, terrible Ted is probably the yeah. most famous. Famous to them all, but there's, you know, Gorgeous Gus and Victor and Smokey and Ginger. Uh, you know, there's a few other ones as well that, that uh, you know, had a lot of ring time. But definitely there's there's stories about the Bears that are woven through the narrative, particularly in, in the chapter on Dave McKigney's promotion. Uh, but also uh, in Vancouver, Don Leo Jonathan uh, holds a very special you know, distinction as it comes to wrestling with bears. Uh, and that story is in the book. Yeah. I think I've read that story. Yeah. It's too good. I had to take it from the first book and make sure that it made it into the second as well. <laughs> yeah. You might so, have to add in uh, Teddy Hart's cat too. Well, you know what? Teddy Hart's cat. I, I, I can't uh, find all the records. So that's why we had to exclude the animal section altogether. Right. I've actually, I've actually got 
pictures uh, by was the first Heart Legacy show or the second Heart Legacy show with Mr. Money in the middle of the show? Tremendous. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Vance, we're all looking forward very much to Chaos. Can you tell us? I know you have a Facebook page, for example. Yeah, right now we're uh, heavy into layout and development. We're very, very. close uh, my my wife has been laughing at me the last few days because the, the the book went to publication uh over a month ago <clears throat> but and i've been working with the publisher on a regular basis getting updates you know, we just uh, the cover art uh, you know to sort of give people that preview but even while we're in layout i haven't stopped reaching uh and so i was you know even up until five minutes before we got on this call today i found Oh, geez, there's another result for Verdun that I didn't have. You know, how does it affect the top 100 stats? Does it affect it at all? I need to know. <laughs> so, you know, in total, um, you know, the the book reflects a body of work that, in, that encompasses more than 60,000 wrestling shows from 1930 to 1930 to 2021. So, um, you know, we've, we've really exhausted exhausted every lead that exists and leverage relationships with the researchers to make sure that the information we have is as thorough and complete as possible. And one of the parts of your first was the stories that were interspersed between. So we had stories about Nicole Matthews, stories about uh, Winnipeg wrestling, but one of them that stuck out to me was General CJ's partner, Kenny Johnson. Can you tell us a little bit about, do you, can you two recall that story about Kenny Johnson and the taxi cab yeah you know what the, the you know it's funny because when you when you get into a book like this and, and you you want to include as much stuff as possible those stories directly from the wrestlers who were involved about stuff that happened behind the scenes you know whether it was a rib that they were playing on each other or, or just things that you know the fans don't think about they know your public life but you know, maybe they don't understand you know some of the hijinks that goes on or some of the some of the private trials and tribulations of wrestlers I thought was very important. And I think that there's, there's probably another book uh, that needs to be written down the road that, that focuses all on that stuff. Uh, I think a book just about wrestling practical jokes would be a bestseller that, that may need to be written down the road. I actually just shared a rib story with Bad News Allen's probably youngest daughter. Her name is Frances. She's got a uh, page for Bad News, and I actually shared a rib story that Kenny and I did on Bad News and Jerry Morrow when they were in at the Clover in, in Cloverdale when they wrestled for Tim Flowers. And she thought it was so amazing. Nice. I actually refereed Bad News Brown's last match. Uh, were you on the show, Vance, when I believe Moondog Manson was the was the promoter for that show, Pro Wrestling Canada or something? They were on show in that East Indian Hall at the corner of Kingsway and Victoria. I wasn't on it, but I'm aware of it. You remember that main event, Great Gamma, and 
Um, Maniac Matt Bourne, South American Street Fight. Yes. Yes. Bad News was the commissioner. Yes. Okay, that was the last time I had ever talked to Bad News Alan. And it was actually out. That show was my birthday, September wow. 7, 2006. I heard that with her, too. With uh, nice. Fran. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Mr. Vada, it's been uh, fantastic going over the history of Stampede Wrestling, going back to the 1940s. That's been tremendous. We're looking forward to Uncontrolled Chaos being released. Any other ways that fans can get in touch with you besides Facebook? Yeah, I think, you know, right now the, the best place to go is, uh, you know, facebook.com slash uncontrolled chaos book, all one word. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, the, the latest information, the teasers is being shared. Uh, we will have a, a big update uh, for people. There's been a lot of, of uh, people read out and, and pre-register to get on the, the pre-sale list. And so that's been fantastic. And, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing the next update with everybody. Well, what's next? Tell- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. Can you tell us if you're going to be appearing at any for any other wrestling promotions possibly this summer to promote your book through maybe BC, Alberta, or possibly Manitoba? Uh, yeah. As soon as we uh, have a release date, um, then we'll, we'll start scheduling. Um, I've already... I mean, the, one of the great things about um, you know, this particular project is because we've had so many touch points uh, with active independent wrestling promoters, uh, giving them coverage that they've never had before, uh, is that I've got an uh, open invitation to appear at almost any independent wrestling show in, in the country uh, when the book is released. So we've had uh, a lot of interest already from Ontario Maritimes uh, and they're just asking me to, to, to confirm the dates as soon as I know them. So um, I would say you can expect to see me at, at wrestling events and Comic-Cons and all of those types of events over the coming year. Um, probably uh, mostly in Alberta because uh, by the end of this month, that, that will be home. Uh, moving, moving back to the, to the right side of the mountains. Oh, are you moving back? I am indeed. Yes. Oh, where, oh, where are you going? I will be uh, in Wetaskiwin. How many active wrestling promotions are running right now in in Western Canada, the four Western Canadian provinces, at this time? <clears throat> Off the top of my head, I think we're probably at twenty. Oh, well, there's still quite a few then. Yeah, there's quite a few in the West. I mean, Alberta's busy. BC is busy. So you, yeah, yeah, uh, you're going, yeah. You're going to be in Wetaskiwin, so you'll be near Edmonton, obviously. There's mm-hmm. a new promotion running out of there. Spencer Love is running one called Love Wrestling. Okay. You know anything about that? Uh, you know what? Not not that much. Uh, I think it's especially you know lately, you know, as I've been you know, focused on research, I could probably tell you more about what happened in wrestling in 1973 than I, than I could in, in 2022. Um, Yeah. It, it's uh, a a lot. And, you know, a lot of the past few weeks especially have been, uh, you know, morning tonight in front of the monitor uh, 
I I don't even tell you what the weather is. Right. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vance. Good luck. Absolutely. I'll uh, trust it. And you as well. Thank you.